for every 100 calories of protein that you eat, you only have, and people don't know this, so at, for every 100 calories of protein you eat, you're only ever able to extract 70 calories of energy, seven zero. Okay, so 30 calories for every 100 calories of protein you eat is used to process protein. So protein calories are 30% wrong everywhere. Well, that is the voice of Dr. Giles Yeo, a geneticist at the University of Cambridge, looking particularly at body weight. And he thinks we need to stop counting calories. Welcome to the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show. I'm Liz Earle, looking into ways to help us all have a better second half of life, whatever our age or stage of life right now. Well, as someone who's always been aware of what the scales register and how best to maintain a healthy weight for myself, I am intrigued to hear the view that calories don't matter and even that we shouldn't be counting them at all. And I think this conversation is going to be especially useful and interesting given the run up to the festive season and the lure perhaps of one too many mince pies. Yeah, guilty. Well, I guess the thing is, we don't eat calories, do we? We eat food, or at least that is the mindset Dr. Giles Yeo is keen for us all to have. Many of us spend a lifetime counting calories, don't we? But Giles's book is called Why Calories Don't Count. So what exactly is a calorie anyway? And how can we stop being slaves to these little numbers? the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Well, welcome back, Giles. It's been a while since we last spoke here. Yeah, it's been since the before time. So, you know, BC. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on again. Oh, no, it's a great pleasure. It was very, very popular last time. And I think this is such a fascinating subject. And can we start off perhaps with, in its most basic form, what is a calorie? What are we talking about? Mm. Uh, So a calorie is a, for lack of a better term, is a unit of energy. The food calorie that we talk about is the amount of energy it takes to raise one liter of water, one degree Celsius at sea level. So that, that's all it is. It's the amount of heat it takes to do that. And so in very many ways, people think, well, surely, therefore, all calories are equal. So calories should all count. Right. But they don't. I guess is my is my argument. That is really fascinating. So they're, they're these little units of energy mm. and we'll come on to how they differ and why they differ in the body. But when and why did we become slaves to calories? I, I guess the scientific concept has been around for hundreds of years, but their role in popular culture with food is a little bit more modern, surely. Not that modern, actually. So so in terms of just as a as a history, the concept of the calorie in food came from a chap named uh, Wilbur Atwater. With a name like that, he had to be American, and he was. Um, <laughs> he was a professor of chemistry at, from Wesleyan University in Connecticut in the United States, but between 1880 and 1900. And he worked out that he was the one that came up with the famous Atwater factors, um, that four calories for a gram of carb, four calories for a gram of protein, and nine calories for a gram of fat. So that, that those were Atwater's numbers. And the amazing thing is we still use those numbers today. But he didn't weaponize it for the diet industry, shall we say. Right. This was actually down to a, a female doctor who, who was unusual at the time um, during World War I, or just to the build-up to World War I, called Lulu Hunt Peters, a Californian doctor. She was a larger lady. 
And she got hold of Atwater's numbers, who had published it in 1900. So this is hundreds of, you know, more than 120, 130 years old now. She decided that, oh, wait a minute, I need to lose weight. And she felt she needed to lose weight. And so she ended up publishing a very, very popular syndicated newspaper column throughout the United States, where what she did was she took Atwater's numbers and sort of converted them into what is a hundred calories of steak? Uh, What is a hundred calories of celery? What is a hundred calories of apple pie? And in effect, wrote this book, a, a diet book about how you could actually lose weight by counting calories. Lulu Hunt Peters in 1918, I think the book was published, fact check me, plus or minus a couple of years, published this book. It went on to become a New York Times bestseller for the next four years running. This was in 1918 to 1922. That she was the first calorie counter and she actually was the one that weaponized the calorie for the diet industry or was the the founder of the diet industry Mm. in very many ways. That's extraordinary, more than 100 years ago. So Mm. where do the guidelines from today come from of around 2,000 calories a day for women, 2,500 calories a day for men? Who created that and how much attention should we actually pay to them? <laughs> is, that, is, is that the big question? That, that, is, that is the big question. I mean, these numbers came a, a lot later, all right? The concern about the number of calories to eat was a post-World War II broadly phenomenon, okay? So wars are terrible things, but what happens is they focus people's minds on quality of food, on the amount of food, on keeping your population fed, And so these numbers, in effect, emerged following on in the years following from World War II, in particular in Europe and the UK, where where we were heavily affected by the war and people were starting to realize that, well, we need during rationing, we need to make sure that people had enough to eat. We need to make sure that, you know, we need our our population healthy and working and productive to, to pay off all these debts. And so these are where all these numbers came from about the concern about calories and how many calories people should be should be eating okay and, and and if you think about it it's perfectly understandable because why would you not want a healthy population a healthy population is a wealthy population yes so 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 i think the problem is we have now got to the stage for two things two things first of all we are not in a situation where we don't have enough food and so we're not actually overly concerned now about about getting enough food we eat too much food And also the type of food we eat today is so very different that a lot of these numbers, I would argue, don't make a lot of sense, uh, too much sense anymore. I imagine so. I mean, I imagine that a homemade apple pie made by the lady in, in 1918 is hugely different from the ingredients that go into a, a pie that comes out of a packet in our supermarket shelves today. Yes, absolutely. And And what you're referring to is what we now call ultra-processed foods, right? So so we're not talking about processed foods here. Processed foods, cooking is a process, uh, fermentation is a process, pickling is a process. Processed foods, people make a lot of bad words about, but actually they've kept us alive. Ultra-processed foods, however, are foods that have been industrially processed, okay? So these are the stuff that we cannot replicate in a domestic kitchen, pretty much. So most prepackaged foods. The issue with ultra-processed foods is that they're stripped out of a, of a lot of essential nutrients, in particular protein and fiber, and they're also stripped of flavor. So as a result, you need to replace the flavor, which where, where does flavor come from? Flavor comes from the holy trinity of sugar, salt, and fat. So ultra-processed foods tend to be lower in protein and fiber and higher in sugar, salt, and fat. And, and it does differ because if you're doing mama's apple pie, you know, and you've started with, with an actual apple and you're, you're doing everything, it's not ultra processed because you've actually created the food. Whereas if you actually use industrial processing, who knows what has happened to the apple? I don't know where the fiber has disappeared to. How much sugar and fat have you put in compared to what you normally would have? It is, while it looks the same, it is substantively a different product. Yes, and and differently used in the body, which I guess brings me on to perhaps digging a little more into the science here. You talk in the book about the difference between calories and caloric availability. Can we explore that a little bit? Caloric availability is the amount of calories you can extract from a food as opposed to the total number of calories stuck in the food. So I'll give, uh, let me give you an example. If you actually, or a couple of examples, if you ate 100 calories of sugar, 
you would pretty much absorb close to 100 calories, 98 calories, actually, of, of sugar, because there's hardly any processing processing to sugar. Okay, So caloric availability of sugar, we could say, is 98%. Now, if you ate sweet corn, however, corn on the cob, and then you munched on it and you looked in the loo the next day, it would be clear that you haven't absorbed anywhere close to the amount of sweet corn you actually ate. Okay, so nice. that, as, as we all been through. Whereas, if you take sweet corn, you desiccate it, you convert it into a cornmeal, you make corn tortilla, you make cornbread, suddenly a far greater percentage of the calories are made available. Now, it's exactly the same source food, it's corn. But yet, what you do to the corn makes a difference in how many calories you are able to extract from the food. That is the concept of caloric availability. The sweet corn effect, I call. And do calories differ from different types of food? You mentioned that early on, that carbs, fats, proteins, the way they're used, they have different effects on our bodies mm. and, and different values, I guess, as to the way we use these calories. They do. Some more different than, than others. So if we take the three macronutrients, so protein, fat and carbs, Okay, those are the three big macronutrients. A calorie of protein makes you feel fuller than a calorie of fat, than a calorie of carb, in that order. And I guess the question is why? Why, why, why that actually is the, is the situation? Two different reasons. Protein takes a lot longer to digest than fat and carbs because it's more complicated chemically. And now digestion is the process that happens within our gut, stomach and gut. And it converts protein into amino acids, carbs into sugars, and fat into fatty acids. And these are then transported across the gut into the bloodstream. And they are then transported to tissues where they use it as energy. So that's digestion. The second half of it is called metabolism. And that's when you actually take amino acids, fatty acids, and sugar, and change that into actual energy that you use. Okay. Now, the whole process of this takes a lot of energy, particularly for something like protein. So for every 100 calories of protein that you eat, you only have, and people don't know this, so at, for every 100 calories of protein you eat, you're only ever able to extract 70 calories of energy, seven zero. Okay, so 30 calories for every 100 calories of protein you eat is used to process protein. So protein Excellent. calories are 30% wrong everywhere. Everywhere. That's interesting. It's like the protein is giving us a bit of a calorie discount then. I, that is a way of looking at it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but, I'm always out yes, for a absolutely. deal. Love a discount. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, then you might ask the question, well, what about the other two? How interesting. How exciting. Now, now I'll give you the bad news first. The bad news is fat is pretty much 100% calorically available. So if you have 100 calories of fat, you are pretty much eating 100 calories of fat. So there's no discount there, mm -hmm. sadly. Um, but carbs, now this is the interesting thing. Okay, now it does make a difference. If you're dealing with the white powdered stuff, sugar, or if you're dealing with refined carbohydrates, so flour, white flour, for example, then the, the availability of, car, uh, of the calories is probably 95 to 98%. Okay, so quite high, really. Whereas if you're dealing with a slice of wholemeal toast, so stuff with fiber in it, sweet corn, okay, then we're dealing probably 90% available. So if you eat a slice of wholemeal toast, then for every 100 calories of wholemeal toast you're eating, you are only, your body will only ever extract and absorb 90 calories. So wholemeal toast because of the fiber, whereas if you ate sugar, if you ate refined flour, then you get more calories out for every 100 calories. That's really interesting. And that is an absolutely classically good example of why calories don't matter, hence the title of your book. That's it. Because if you're eating 100 calories of protein, you're actually only eating 70 calories of Correct. protein or getting 70 calories. So is the message then eat more fibre to in, uh, get a lower calorie loading on the body? I, so I guess the, my purpose in writing the book was not to allow us a more sophisticated way of counting calories. That, that, was, that was not the reason, although I do think we need a more sophisticated way of counting calories. That wasn't the reason. I think... Because the two items of food that influence this concept of caloric availability the most are protein and fiber. Okay, those are the two elements. Fiber because we can't digest. It comes out the other side. Mm -hmm. um, protein for the, reasons, uh, for the reasons I told you. What actually those two items of food sort of as a shorthand tell you is about the quality of the food. 
Okay, so while we may have a more sophisticated way of measuring the calorie of a protein, if you know that this protein is higher in protein and or fiber, then actually you are eating a better quality of food. Your diet is better. And my, I, my you know, my, why I find the calorie not useless, but a blunt tool is because while it tells us how much food we're eating, which is fine, that's an important measure, I guess, it doesn't tell you anything about the quality of the food that we're eating. Mm. And I like to argue that's more important, that we have, yes. that we improve the quality of our diets. Yes, and actually understand how that food is being used in the body. Because after all, we are using food as fuel, as something that fills us up and prevents hunger. I'm interested actually in the point that protein fills us up for longer. That's certainly been mm. my experience. I always start the day with protein. I used to start it with carbs, you know, toast and marmalade, bowl of cereal, all of that. I absolutely give that a wide swerve. If I'm going to have those things, I'll have them later in the day. But I definitely set myself up with eggs and avocado and thick yogurt and things like that because I do find that it just keeps me fuller for longer and I'm less likely to snack. And, and, and that's absolutely true. And that is how, in fact, if you actually look at some of the popular diets that are out there, keto, uh, um, you know, which are famously low in carbs and high in fat, but no one ever talks about the fact that it's high in protein. The reason why a lot of these diets actually work is because they're high in protein. They make you feel fuller. They mm. make you feel fuller for longer. Um, and so therefore, exactly right. If you, you should start your day with eggs, you know, with, uh, with, with, with yogurt, um, and that will actually set you up for the day. That's true. Well, I'm glad I'm doing something right. That's really good. I mean, you know, personal experience, it, it really, it really is seem to make a difference. Is that something to do with our relationship with genes and hormones? I know that we've talked before about your work as a geneticist. And, and you found that body weight for those who are looking mm. to perhaps reduce a bit of, of, of unhealthy body mm. weight, it isn't necessarily a straightforward choice. It isn't a straightforward choice because some people are more drawn towards food than others. There is also the complexities of how we, it, we, we what within the field we call nutrient partitioning, which means that for every given calorie, for lack of a better term, that we eat, how much do we store and how much do we burn? So there are genetic influences to that. This concept, however, of caloric availability on average is the same amongst all individuals, except if you're diabetic. So let, let's leave aside if you're diabetic, right? because then you can't handle some mm -hmm. of the fuels at all. But, but if you are non-diabetic, then most of us will have the, this phenomenon of protein taking a lot more energy to to uh, digest versus fat versus uh, versus carbs versus fat is true for everybody there's going to be slight differences between you and me between me and someone else between a polynesian and a south asian indian between a white person and an east asian there are going to be differences in how we handle the food where we put the fat and those and that is where we get the differences in size in shape and in susceptibility to disease as well Mm, interesting. And something else that I'd like to touch on, which we've talked about here on the podcast, is the word metabolism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when people say, oh, it's my metabolism, mm -hmm. you know, that can be sometimes used as an excuse, but, you know, maybe a smug comment if somebody's looking particularly trim. Does metabolism explain perhaps why we're carrying a little more weight than we might like to or, or why we find it easier perhaps to, to stay slimmer? What is the truth about our metabolism and, and where does that fit into the conversation around calories? Okay, I mean, uh, look, I'm going to give you a, um, you should know me by now, I'm going to give you a nuanced answer here. Um, and the answer is metabolism does play a role, although the role is overstated. So how do we know it plays a role? Um, there was a, a scientist called Claude Bouchard um, quite a few years ago now, decades ago, did an experiment. And what he did was he had twins, identical twins, um, within a sort of clinical research um, setting for a month or something. I forgot exactly the amount of time. And he fed these pairs of identical twins exactly the same amount of food and had everyone do exactly the same activity. And what he found was between the twin pairs, so in other words, in each twin pair, the identical twins, they gained exactly the same amount of weight because they were twins. But if you compare different twin pairs that were fed exactly the same thing and doing exactly the same amount of time on an exercise bike, etc. They all gain different amounts of weight, okay? So metabolism does play a role. 
undoubtedly. However, I do think it's overstated. And, and, and why do I think that? So I'll give you one example. Now, a chocolate bar, okay, typically is probably, what, 240 calories, okay? And a typical size normal chocolate bar of all makes is 240 calories. Now, if I'm motivated, and I often am, I can finish a chocolate bar in 30 seconds, maybe. <laughs> but no matter how quickly I eat the chocolate bar, mm. it will always take me half an hour on a treadmill to burn it off. So we are evolved as, as living beings, I guess, but as humans, to eat calories quicker than we can burn them. Why? Because it's what's kept us alive. We are efficient creatures. So metabolism will play a role, but it will always play a far smaller role than how much food you actually mm. eat. And why do we crave these higher calorie foods, things like the chocolate bar? Um, that's an interesting question, and I guess it depends on how hungry you feel. So I think on a, on a basic level, the reason we crave the higher energy foods is because they make us feel nicer. Okay, Why do they make us feel nicer? Because evolutionarily, we're designed to make sure that when calories are there, that we eat them. Because we, we existed through most of our life sorry, not our life, through most of human beings' existence, we never had enough food, okay? It was, a, it was a scrabbling existence. And so whenever there was food available, you ate it. Whenever there was higher calorie foods available compared to celery, for example, well, then you better have a desire for the higher calories to make sure you ate more than you needed because there's no guarantee you'll get food the next time around. So it is, a, in, in very many ways, a hard wiring for us, for most of us, obviously it's not universal, for most of us to prefer the higher calorie option. Mm. Very interesting. And I guess if you're hungry, then you're going to want to satisfy that hunger quickly. So you might be drawn. So I guess, does it come down to evening out hunger pangs, trying to reduce the insulin spikes? Again, I guess that's something that's soothed, if you like, with higher protein that, that can regulate blood sugar. Yeah. So, so undoubtedly, if you actually have foods that are higher in carbohydrates rather than fat or protein, your blood sugar will go up quicker because there is a shorter link between carbs, which is either sugar or strings of sugar, you know, to, to sugar in your blood. Everything else, protein and fat, will result in an increase in blood sugar, but it just takes longer. And so, you know, in very many, this is another reason why calories don't count, because depending on what you eat, um, your blood sugar does different things, your insulin does different things. And so the calories that go into you depending on what their source, will do different things to you too. That's so interesting. We're going to take a break in a moment, but I just want to very quickly ask you this, mm. asking for a friend, clearly. <laughs> if I had the choice between yes. a chocolate bar, basically a sugar bar, uh, and say a oat-rich flapjack covered in a bit of cream, and they both had the same number of calories, would I be better off choosing the flapjack and cream version, knowing that I'd be getting a 30% discount? Now, the question is how much sugar there is in a flapjack, but I would, choose, I would choose the one with more fiber or more protein, depending if you had nuts in the flapjack bar as well. Okay, excellent answer. Thank you. Well, we will take a very quick pause here, Giles. After the break, we're going to chat about the difference between our health and our weight. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, welcome back. And I'd love to chat a little bit more, Giles, about what you make of some of the weight loss interventions, because I know that a lot of people listening, when they hear the words calories, will be immediately dialed into the weight loss ideas. Do you look at things like gastric bands, which presumably are supposed to work by simply not allowing us to eat as many calories? Uh, no, not not. Uh, so actually looking at gastric bands... That's not actually true. So the most popular, or certainly the most effective of the of the bariatric surgery, this gastric surgery, is not the band. It's a replumbing of the gut. It's actually called Rouen Y. It's a long story why it's called Rouen Y. But in effect, you reduce your stomach into um, the volume of a tablespoon. I'm not joking. Okay. And then remove about a meter of gut. That sounds like a lot, but we have nine meters of gut. Now, it was designed originally to make sure we absorb fewer calories. But that, as it turns out, is not how it works at all. First of all, your tablespoon-sized stomach expands pretty freaking quickly, amazingly. Um, It happens because, let's put it this way, we get a different type of gut hormone profile that is released. And so we know of over 20 gut hormones in in our body, 18 of which make us feel fuller. So when different gut hormones get released, or more gut hormones get released, typically you feel fuller. So what the gastric bypass actually does is it results in the release of more and different types of gut hormones and you feel fuller. So you eat less because you feel fuller, not because you've absorbed less food. Not because you physically, your stomach is smaller, but you have more of the helpful hormones. That's completely fascinating. Does that mean then that we could be uh, perhaps in the future having hormone supplements of these gut-friendly appetite-suppressing hormones rather than going through bariatric surgery? We're doing that now. We're doing that really? now. So the big drug that's just been released probably earlier in the year. I'm trying I'm thinking I'm thinking March, April. So this year, this is this is now science, right? Is a drug called um semaglutide. That's the chemical name. It's not this is not what it's sold. It's by a company called Nova Nordisk, but other companies are making similar drugs. Um they're weaponized gut hormones. Okay. Now they're not oral yet, so you have to inject them. But what happens is because they are a weaponized version of a gut hormone that exists within us, it targets the right part of the brain. You inject the hormone, it makes you feel fuller, you then eat less. And it's approved on the NHS for people who are above a BMI of 35, okay, at the moment, at the moment. Um, but trials have shown that if you are on this drug, semaglutide, for two years, you lose on average... So some people lose more, some people lose less, on average 15% of your of your body weight. And it does exactly that. It mimics bariatric surgery. That's fascinating. And are we talking about the hormones leptin and ghrelin? We are not. No. So this is this is different. I don't even know whether they are hormones. Are they perhaps just different? Oh, no, no. They're, they're, they're hormones. This particular hormone is called, it has a name, GLP-1. Very unexciting. Um, <laughs> okay. But... <laughs> But, but it makes you feel fuller. So leptin is a fat hormone. And what the interesting thing about leptin is more of it doesn't make you feel full. Leptin plays a role in the hunger portion of your I'm feeling hungry. GLP-1 plays a role in the I feel full portion. And you might think they're the same thing. They're not. Okay, so the more hungry I am, the more food I want. Whereas if you mess around with the gut hormones, it means you take less food to take to become full. Two different right, so sides of say, the coin. 
I'm not going to eat anymore because I'm just stuffed. I can't possibly right. manage another mouthful. Right, as opposed to real, I'm really, really hungry at the moment. It's it's two different yes. uh, circuits. Interesting talking about the gut, and we talk a lot about the microbiome and probiotics and microbial activity on this podcast. Do gut microbes influence what's going on here? And can we perhaps help our messaging, our signalling by encouraging different species of gut bacteria? Um, I think the answer is yes, but once again, it's probably slightly overstated. Um, So I think undoubtedly, we need a healthy uh, gut microbiome to be healthy. That is just unequivocal. All right. It helps our immune system. It helps any number of different different things that are there. And also your gut uh, microbiome is the first thing that your food sees. Once it gets through your stomach and into your intestines, that's what it sees. And it plays a role. um, the, The bugs in particular play a role in fermenting some of the soluble fibers that we actually eat, okay? And they can convert these soluble fibers into helpful foods and fuels that that some of them make us feel fuller as well. So they do indeed play a role. I don't think that they are the cause uh, uh, or bad bug, bad gut microbiome, I don't think is the cause of the obesity problems we face today, but they could play a role in terms of a vicious cycle. And they de- you definitely need them to be healthy for you to be healthy. Mm, I've heard talk of a particular gut bug called acomancia, which has been investigated for weight loss. I think my understanding is that people who are naturally slim or very healthy weight seem to have more acomancia in their gut than those who don't. Is there any evidence of that? So I think the the problem with these studies is, are we talking about causation or correlation, so to speak, right? So in other words, are the, the gut microbiome of skinny people going to differ from people who are less skinny, people who are living with obesity? I think the answer almost entirely is going to be yes. But is it because of the type of diet and the health of the person with obesity? that the gut microbiome is different from the skinny person. And so actually experiments have been done where you, you do, it's it's lovely, it's called fecal microbiota transfer. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's otherwise called a transfusion. Yes. And <laughs> it, is, it is a transfusion. It's called, it's, I'm not making it up. In fact, if you, if, you, if you put it into a capsule and send it down the other end, don't think too hard about it. It's called a crapsule. Once again, I'm not making any of this up. <laughs> <laughs> so so but so the the experiments have been done and mm-hmm. while this has mm. proven effective in mice um the data has yes, been okay yeah the, the the data shall we say has been equivocal in humans i think mm. the likelihood of a skinny bug being able to make someone who's not skinny skinny is very very low from a human from a human perspective this doesn't change the importance of the gut microbiome i want to yes. point out i just yes. I just don't think it's going to be used as an effective drug, not for weight loss at any rate. So it really does come back to what we are stuffing into our mouths in the terms Mm -hmm. of food as to what Mm -hmm. is making a difference. So then if we are at the supermarket saying we're reading the backs of a couple of different packets of food, assuming that we are buying packet food, what is more important? Is it the, the makeup, say, of the micro and the macronutrients that we're looking at or the number of calories listed? Oh, (laughs) <laughs> you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, so, I guess. So I think, <laughs> so if if I might actually, so it depends what you're in the mood for, right? So I think what does annoy me are some people who say, please replace the chocolate bar with a banana. Now, the problem with a statement like that is sometimes life demands a banana and sometimes life demands a chocolate bar. So the question is, can you find a healthier chocolate bar or a bar that fits within the, the um, this is your question about whether or not you should have a flapjack or a chocolate bar they sort of fit the same criteria of a snacky sweetie thing with a little bit of fat rather than a banana so i think if you are in a flapjack slash chocolate bar slash frozen lasagna slash whatever pick your pick your packet food of choice try and pick the one with the higher protein higher fiber and hopefully lower free sugars that would be what i would what 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 i would do you are making so much sense i know for me personally i i'm an avid investigator of labels i've even been known to embarrass my children by whipping out a magnifying glass in shops before i decide which <laughs> packet biscuits you know but where they're allowed to put into the shopping trolley i'm not joking and for me i always look at sugars you know the amount of sugar per 100 gram for me 
is just it's an automatic reflex now I will just turn over any packet and and clock that and I try and eat very low sugar I mean I, I was advised once that the goal was to go for nine, five grams of sugar or less per hundred gram which is is very small I mean that is very very low so so can I yeah okay it's 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 not impossible to do but tell me it's not impossible this is not, sorry to interrupt so but I just want to wanted to come in a problem well two things you've highlighted there with that with with that statement first you needed magnifying glass because yeah. they give you reams of information but unless you unless it's in bright light and you have your reading glasses you can't see a damn thing okay and secondly the amount of the type of information so a they give so much information most of it is useless because none of us can see it but second the sugar that you've actually pointed out all right now in the united states and look the united states has its many weaknesses i'm not here to 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 big any all of it up but what they do do is do do is they separate out free sugars or added sugars from total sugar and that is an important number i think that this 5% this 5 grams per 100 should be limited to the added or free sugars rather than total sugar. Mm. So the, Let's so the, talk about that then. So mm. w- what is the difference? That is fascinating. I had no idea that they were ahead of us. I always thought that we were ahead of the curve with our nutritional standards and labelling, but clearly not. Not for not for sugar. And this and this is the thing. So to be clear, sugar is sugar is sugar. Okay, it doesn't matter whether or not it comes from honey or algarve nectar or the white powder stuff. It's all the same thing. They taste different because one is bee puke, one is, uh, uh, one is cactus juice and, and what Honey you, is not right? bee puke, I'm sorry. It's marvellous prebiotic <laughs> delicious natural food. I'm not going to let you get away with that one. <laughs> you can have your crapsule, so, but, but you can't have your bee puke, okay? <laughs> so, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to behave now. And, um, but there, there is a substantive difference between sugar that is associated with fiber. So sugar found in fruit in particular, okay? Because the presence of the fiber changes how we extract the sugar. That's the first thing. Whereas if you add sugar in, the sugar is not associated with fiber and we absorb it immediately. So, so th- when, when you eat, just as an example, this is the orange juice versus eating an orange comparison. They're exactly the same source of food. But if you drink an orange juice, you absorb the sugar almost immediately because there's no chewing, there's no fiber, it goes directly into your body. Whereas if you eat exactly the same amount of sugar, but in an orange, suddenly, A, you've chewed, B, you're digesting it for half the day, the sugar is released over a long period of time, and the fiber prevents you from eating too much sugar. How many oranges can you really eat? How much orange juice can you drink? So when you take the 5%, it needs to be focused on the free and added sugars, which the Americans do split out. Amazing. Whereas in the UK, it just says total sugar. Yeah, that is completely fascinating and makes perfect sense. And I will be relaying that information to my children as well, because we do have these these very arguments. Do you think that looking at sugars on a pack, if there is one thing that, that we are going to really try and study and, and actually look at in a bright light or with our reading glasses, is that possibly the most helpful thing to be looking for on a food label? It depends what you're eating. It does depend what you're eating. Clearly, if you're eating a food that is not supposed to have a, a lot of sugar. So I'll, actually, let me to give, you, give you an anecdote. My, my wife told me to go and buy some beetroot and I'm lazy, so just prepackaged beetroot because she wanted to do. She wanted to have a beetroot salad, and so I went and I went to a supermarket. Other many supermarkets are available, and I got their finest version because I'm a sucker for that. Okay, and so I walked home. I I, I gave it a pack, and I got yelled at. She goes, "Did you see how much sugar?" Do-? She doesn't speak like that. Did Did you see how much sugar there is in the pack of this? And I didn't. And it's terrible given what I work on. <laughs> And it was, it had something ridiculous, like it was boiled in sugar. It was like 20% sugar. It was stupid amounts of sugar. So I went back the next day and now I started peering at the back and there was this pack of non-finest, right? Mm. Exactly the same size, but it was cooked in vinegar. And, and I took it home. There was 5% sugar in it. And so I think for something like that, you look at the sugar. If you're eating lasagna and you're buying a pre-pack, I would focus on the fiber and the protein right. um, rather than the sugar. So it does depend yes. what you're eating. Really fascinating. And before we move on, I, I'm really interested in this idea of free sugars. And I've heard American functional medicine doctors and nutritionists and people talking about 
corn syrup and high fructose corn syrup, which seems to be added to so many packaged foods, ultra processed foods, particularly in America. And presumably that's what they're getting at, because I imagine that a high fructose corn syrup is just an added free sugar that goes straight into your bloodstream. Yes. So so once again, there's a nuance to, to, to that answer. High fructose corn syrup, aside from the fact that it's an industrial process, which is unpalatable some, and that's fair enough, um, is in effect glucose that has been chemically, half the glucose has been chemically converted into fructose. And the reason you do that is because fructose is what makes sugar taste nice. Sugar is fructose and glucose together. So high fructose corn syrup is sort of like sucrose, but from a chemical perspective. So that's a problem. But automatically, by the fact that they say they've used high fructose corn syrup means that all of that is added, correct? It's, you're not going to naturally find high fructose corn syrup in, in, in a fruit, no. So that would be something that very would be very simple to screen out of anything that you might potentially be buying if it's got that list Yes, or anything pack, that says syrup. Uh, yes, correct. Okay, syrup, that, that's, that's bad. Mm. Talking about foods that are higher in calories but perhaps better for us and getting back to this notion that we mm. shouldn't be counting calories... When might it be healthier then to eat food and meals that are higher in calories, but actually more nutrient dense? Okay, so uh, once again, there's a complexity here. I mean, clearly, the, the, the foods that are highest in calories are going to be high in fat. And now, leaving aside sugar for now, there is also the anti-fat brigade, right? Fat is bad, fat is terrible, you shouldn't eat fat. But fat comes in different guises, right? You, you, you have fat in a steak, so saturated fats, or you have fish oil, or you have olive oil. And now those are also going to be tremendously high in calories. Whereas if you had a meal that was rich in fish oil and rich in olive oil, that would be a very, very different kind of meal to something that was rich in lard. And I like lard, I'm just just, just saying. Um, or something that is rich in a lot of sugars or refined flours. So there are going to be situations in which a potato that's cooked in uh, that, you know, new potatoes that you sort of put olive oil in and roast in the oven, they're going to be high in calories, but they're going to be great for you. Yes. Because they're going to be crispy, they're going to be delicious, but they've been cooked in olive oil compared to something else. So that's a classic example where just because something is high in, 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 in calories doesn't mean it's bad for you. If you eat too much of it, you can still end up heavier than you need to be, yes. But in terms of your heart health, in terms of the uh, what happens to your, your microbiome, your blood pressure, then, you know, olive oil is going to be good for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm a massive fan. And, and we now know about its polyphenol content and its Correct. antioxidant activity and mm-hmm. all of those things. It's, it's the one oil that I have in my kitchen. What do you cook with at home? So the problem, no, I love olive oil and I have that in my house as well, except for when I'm stir frying stuff. Because olive oil has a lower, uh, particularly the virgin olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, has a lower smoke factor. It burns easily. And so it impairs the flavor of the food. So when I cook, I tend to use nut oils because nut oils are also um, um, also good for you. Okay. Uh, groundnut oil, for example. And so I tend to, and Chinese people tend to cook. I am ethnically Chinese. We tend to cook stir fry with groundnut oil. It doesn't impair the flavor. It can take a higher temperature. So groundnut oil and olive oil for other things. Yeah. Very, very interesting indeed. Moving on now to, I guess, a wider conversation about the environment and, and where we're living. What role does the environment have perhaps in in determining how many calories we put into our bodies. You talk a little bit about that in your book, about being aware, more aware, so that we can make more informed and, and more conscious choices. I think the environment plays a, a huge role. Um, a, because of you go to the supermarket or you go to the boots, other shops are available, or you go to yes. the you know, petrol station and you are assaulted with all kinds of food around you that you didn't go there to buy food. You went there to buy diesel, you went there to buy paracetamol. So it's, clearly it does matter. But I think a bigger thing to think about, particularly in the environment we're living now, that the cost of living crisis that, that, that we're in at the moment, is the fact that actually a big part of it is your socioeconomic situation. Okay, So in this country, for example, the bottom 20% socioeconomically of society is twice as likely, twice as likely. So the the prevalence of obesity in the bottom 20% is around 37%. Mm -hmm. Whereas to to you, to me, and to your listeners, broadly speaking, I don't want to to, uh, paint broad brushstrokes, but I am. 
Um, between us, we probably have a prevalence of obesity at around a 20% mark, so nearly half of that. And that is not genetic. There's no genetic difference between rich and poor as an accident of birth. That is entirely down to the types of foods that are available and affordable to us. Now, we can make the choices that we've discussed here. Olive oil, da-da-da. But if you are poor, okay, and if you are just need to feed your kids, are you really going to be thinking about your polyphenols? This is the problem. And so we need to make healthier food cheaper for everybody and not make it more expensive. Because at the moment, unhealthy food is cheaper. It's the cheapest thing available in the store rather than healthy foods. And I think that's criminal. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, in supermarkets, where are the big sacks of bulk buy pulses and lentils and beans and veg and the low cost, high value, high nutritious foods that can be cooked up? You know, I, I made a lentil dal at the weekend and just with some leftover beans and chickpeas and all sorts of things just just chuck them in with some leftover veggies absolutely delicious i mean it served seven of us for for really not very much and when i analyzed the nutrition of it i was thinking mm, that's quite interesting i've got those mix of beans and peas and rices and things it's a complete source of protein it was incredibly tasty and it didn't take any time at all to throw together and you know where are these messages driving that because in every sense, it makes sense, doesn't it? From cost of living to nutritional value to, I guess, social eating, cooking from scratch, being part of that whole family environment where we perhaps cook and sit and eat together as well. There are so many layers to it, aren't there? There are so many layers. The environment matters a lot and sounds slightly odd to be speaking to someone who's a geneticist and studies the biological side of things. But it is so crucial that we fix the food environment that, that we're in, in particular for those that have less choices. Because what happens when you're poor and less privileged is primarily you lack choices. You are time poor, cash poor, knowledge poor. And so therefore you make the decisions you've got to make. And we have to fix that. It's, otherwise it's a crime. I agree with you. And I think it's a responsibility and a duty for all those involved in food production at whatever stage of the game to, to try and ensure that that is, is happening. Mm. Talking about environments, what do you make now of restaurants having to put calories on menus? Presumably you're not a fan. I'm, I'm not a fan, you know, for all the reasons we've talked about today. I'm not a fan because it just tells you about the amount of food you're eating. You know, people say, oh, more information is going to help. Look, 90% of our food today comes from the supermarket. We don't eat in restaurants that often. We do uh, uh, go once every so often. And the information has always been available. It's just so small and so much, we haven't been able to extract the right type of information. By all means, give more information, but give more information that reflects the quality of the food you're eating. Protein, fiber, sugar levels. Don't just put the calories. Don't put the calories at all, my argument. I think the traffic light signals should be changed for the amount of protein, the amount of fiber, and the amount of sugar, rather than everything else that is there. Well, good luck with getting that one approved by the food industry. <laughs> they are going to resist that <laughs> they at are. all costs. Can you imagine virtually everything in a packet would be bright red? I mean, it's it's really shocking how these, these symbols are manipulated, but that is a whole other story. And mm. actually talking about manipulation, the, mm. the, the word diet in itself has, has been hijacked, I think, slightly, because it, it makes us think of austere and, and rigid eating eating plans. But really, our diet is just simply what we eat, isn't it? So can you give us some pointers to change that narrative and how we can think about the great things that we can add into our diet rather than kind of feeling hard done by that we've got to have things taken away from us? Well, first of all, the word diet comes from the Greek word dieta, I think I can't pronounce it, meaning a way of life. Isn't that more beautiful than to think yeah, about restriction? Yeah. And so our food should be a way of life. So, okay. So I think we need, what should we be counting instead of calories, I guess? You know, um, we need to have a more positive thing. I think we need to think about um, the amount of protein we're eating. Um, as I said, there's a sweet spot though. If you eat too much, it makes our kidneys work too hard. And incidentally, when I say protein, I don't only mean steak, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you know, beans, tofu, they all count. Um, we need to shoot for 16% of our diet to come from protein. I think we need to eat as much fiber as possible. I think we should be shooting for 30 grams a day of fiber. At the moment, on average, we only eat 15 grams. So we are half, only halfway there. And then that 5% mark you were telling about, about sugar. But 
but I refer to free sugars, added sugars, rather than total sugars. Fascinating. And as a definitive answer, Giles, to end on, are there any situations in which counting calories is useful or should we just ditch them altogether? So... You're not going to give me a yes, no, 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 let me give you this answer. I understand that 200 calories of chips is twice the portion of 100 calories of chips. But so is 200 grams of chips twice the portion of 100 grams of chips. And no one is trying to compare 100 grams of carrots to 100 grams of chips. That's my answer. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's been absolutely fascinating and very helpful, I think, in the run-up to the festive season. Giles Yeo, thank you. Well, how fascinating was that and how empowering too for those of us who may have lived for years counting calories or live by food conversion tables. Time for a major rethink on all here. I know that I shall be paying even more attention to my protein and fibre content and definitely looking out for those free sugars. So interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this actually, especially if you are one of our many overseas listeners and have access to different information on your everyday food labels. Love how Giles has given us all permission to cut ourselves a bit of healthy slack perhaps over the festive season too. Well how has this chat changed your view on food and the concept of calories? Well either now or in the future you're welcome to come and say hello and drop me a comment on social media. You will find my podcast team at Lizelle Wellbeing and I am at Lizelle Me. Well I'm off now to find a low free sugar mince pie. Until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.